that's the ancient dilemma of mm-hmm. the the call to mission. Yeah. You know, to what extent do you allow people? Well, allow. To what extent do you validate what people are doing now while trying to get them to act differently? I think any any reasonable assessment of the good of the human person would look at someone in a chair and say, "We need to get you out of that chair." <laughs> right. But when you think about the alternatives, like suppose, okay, I get you out of the chair, and there's no work for you, and there's nowhere for you to live and there's no one that you love outside the chair, yeah. right? Then it's tough. You're going to be dealing with people who everyone they know and love is that they connect to through virtual reality. Yeah. And, you know, I think the first step would be to get people to acknowledge Jesus and to study Jesus and start to walk with Jesus. And then, yeah. you know, in a dystopian future, there's going to be a priest who knocks on the door and the person is surprised to have anybody knock on the door. Right. Or, or not not even a priest, but a, a person who says, come with me. Right. Get out of the chair and come with me and receive the bread of life. We are wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born. Like Dante, we are in a dark woods, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Grant Martzoff. I direct Beatrice Institute's Personalism and Public Policy Initiative. How should we organize our common life to promote the flourishing of the person made in the image of God? So my guest today is Dr. Edward Ted Castronova. Ted is a professor of media at Indiana University. He holds a PhD in economics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He specializes in the study of games, technology, and society. He's written five books, the most recent of which is Life is a Game, What Game Design Says About the Human Condition. So welcome to the show, Ted. Hey, thanks a lot, Grant. It's great to be here. Yeah. So first, to get us going, sure. how did you go from failed economist to professor of media? <laughs> okay. So, all right. The failed economist part. I started out doing statistical studies of poverty and uh, it didn't work out. I was publishing in all kinds of different fields. And as you know, in academia, you're supposed to really, at the start of your career, focus on one thing. And so when tenure time came, I didn't have any kind of a decent track record at all. So ended up uh, losing my very nice position University of Rochester, and I had to go to Cal State Fullerton, which, you know, no offense to anybody who's in the Cal State system, but, you know, Orange County is a hard place to live in with an associate professor degree. So I was out there, you know, I was single, I was all edgy and everything. So I just stopped really caring about my career, and I started playing video games. And I, I'd been a gamer when I was a kid, but I just said, you know what, it the teaching here is so easy, you just go in, you open up the book, you just teach whatever's in the econ book. And uh, I started playing this video game called EverQuest. And uh, I thought it would be funny to write a joke paper about this video game. Because, you know, every video game has stores and currency. And what was unique about this one at the time, this is in the year 2001, is it was unique at the time that there would be a bunch of people in the same space and they have their economy and everything. And then they'd go on eBay and sell their gold pieces there. So to me, as an economist, I said, well, that's an exchange rate. So what I can do is I can come up with dollar values for everything that's going on in this economy. And uh, so I started out writing a paper, like a joke, and it turns out the numbers were really big, like hundreds of millions of dollars worth of transactions going on just in this video game. 
And so I wrote a paper and I was like, it's still, you know, just kind of a silly paper. So I didn't try to publish it. I just put it up as a working paper on a download site. And uh, it was one of the few sites at the time that didn't have a paywall. And it just took off. I mean, it just, you know, nothing I'd ever written was ever of interest to anybody. But I wrote this paper about economics of video games. And it was getting like thousands of downloads a week. You know, it's still like in the top 20 of all economics papers ever written right. on the Social Science Research Network. And so I just, I realized that, you know, kind of like somebody who finds oil in their backyard, it's like, oh, wow. So I just, I hooked my career to video games. And when my current school, Indiana, called and said, you know, you're an economist. That's great. You can come here and just be a game scholar. I'm like, who wouldn't want to do that? Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> so, so I said, sign me up and the rest. And, and I've been here for 17 years. Yeah. So is EverQuest still a, a, an existing game that you play? Oh, yeah. Uh, not that I play, but one of the things we've learned about these online games is they never die. Hmm. It's What happens is the people who play them become this very, very specialized and unique group of like nerds for the game. So EverQuest is still around. Yeah. Are there any efforts to pull these games together into one sort of online mega virtual world? I, you know, I thought that was going to happen. So my prediction back in 2001 was that there's going to be one virtual world and it was going to provide all of our services. So, you know, Grant would craft this ideal Grant self that would be in this one virtual world and he'd log in there and you'd get your email as that self and you'd do all your Zoom and everything. That is not what happened. Instead, what's happened is every game that had like multiple value uh, sources in it, like different kinds of services, like a social kind of service or player versus player, different kinds of modes of play. Every world like that split up. In other words, hmm. someone would innovate that and some other company would say, you know, you have player versus player combat in your world and you, you've designed it a certain way. We're just going to make a game about that. And, and so like League of Legends, for example, is a, is a big time five versus five battle game. And that mode of play was pretty much invented within games like World of Warcraft that were these huge virtual worlds. The economic term for this is unbundling. Mm. So it's it's when you know a firm offers a product that has a lot of different features and then they what happens is different things are taken out and specialized. And that's what's happened. Like there's been this flowering of different kinds of applications, some games, some serious, where uh, you know, you can trace their origins to kind of big virtual worldy type games, but uh, today they all have their own software and their own platform. So I, I actually think the reverse of the metaverse is happening. Oh, interesting. So we'll return to this question of virtual worlds in a little while. I, we're going to probably yeah. dedicate the majority of the interview to that. So we'll return to this question. I'll give you an opportunity to sort of opine a bit about what the future <laughs> might look like in terms of virtual worlds. Sure. But I do want to talk a little bit about your most recent book. I, I did read it and actually gave it as a Christmas present to oh. my nephew, who's very in, interested in cool. particularly video games. Nice. Thank you. So it's called Life is a Game. So I want you to start out, what is a game? Okay. Life is a game. So there are a lot of different definitions of games. And uh, the one I rely on is the one from mathematical game theory. So, because I, I think it's the most rigorous and the tightest definition. You have a game whenever you have a set of players who have strategies, they have choices, things they can do, and there's a mapping function, if you will, that goes from the choices people make into some kind of outcome that they care about. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a very broad definition, right? It's anytime you have strategic interaction among people that matters. And that's kind of why people say, well, you know, married life is kind of a game 
you know, she makes this move, I make this move, or the election is like a game. So to me, a, a game, anything that has those features is a game. Um, other definitions usually rely on some idea that it's like play or it's for entertainment. And I find them to be too loosey-goosey for my tastes. Okay. So the, the connections might be obvious, but if maybe make a little more explicit this connection that you're making in your book between life and, and games. And, and what, what are the features of life that make it a game? And to be clear, you're not making the argument that life is like a game or it has features of a game. Right. You're arguing in your book that it is functionally a game. Right. So one of the, I approach this from several different angles. Number one is if you go back in literature and philosophy for thousands of years, everybody's always saying, this is like a game. You know, the things about life, mm -hmm. this aspect of life is like a game. This, you know, this other one is Lombardi, you know, football's a game of life. You know? Right. <laughs> and so you see it everywhere. So I'm not the first person to see the connections. But what I argue is that we've, we've matured in our understanding about what games are. They're pretty much under, un, unstudied as an entity by you know, intellectual people until maybe 1925 or so. So it, games have already existed and not really been paid that much attention to. And uh, so I feel like we know more things about what games are. For example, we've developed mathematical game theory that gives us a formal mathematical definition that, you know, games are players, strategies, and outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I learned that theory when I was a kid, and now I look at life. And does life have players? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are there strategies? Well, if you accept that there's free will, which not all people do, but if there's free will, then there are meaningful choices. And then outcomes. Does it matter what we do in life? Well, I think most people would say yes. Some would say no. It's all just atoms. But if you if you agree that there's free will and some value to the human person, it's, it's kind of it just follows right. as a as a, a like a formal logical proof that there are players, strategies, and outcomes. Therefore, life is a game. So one thing that I was thinking about as I was reading your book is the question: Are, are we all playing the same game? with the same victory conditions, but with different stances? Or are we all playing our own sort of self-designed game with our own victory conditions that we're just sort of playing by ourselves? I have a personal view and an academic view. Okay, let's, see, let's hear them both. Okay, so let's start with the academic view. If we just look analytically at how people are, it's clear that folks believe themselves to be pursuing different victory conditions. Mm -hmm. So there is a subjective element to the way people characterize the game that they're playing. You know, some people, uh, their main interest is to feel good. Others say very vaguely, I want to be happy. That's all I want. Mm -hmm. And others want to make the most money. And others really want to um, help the world. Okay. Other people are trying to get into heaven. So just looking at it from an analytical standpoint, I think, and in writing the book, I just wanted to say, look, you know, people have different views of what winning this game is. And all I ask of people is that they are consistent between their sort of philosophical choice about what the victory condition is and then how they play towards that victory condition. Yeah. Okay, I feel like that's an area of thinking where lots of people with different philosophies can agree, right. given a certain set of goals. Mm -hmm. You know, are you approaching those goals logically? And a bunch of the book is devoted to that. Now, that's so that's. <laughs> as a professor. <laughs> Let me ask a quick question. As you're talking, I have this image in my mind of game night, family game night, where everybody, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sitting here playing Catan, my son's sitting here playing Seven Wonders, 
Yeah. My daughter's playing Escape the Dark Castle. That's not fun. <laughs> right. Well, actually it can be. Yeah. Okay. So one of the one of the most fun things in games is called asymmetric play. Okay. And that is when you have several people and they have completely different objectives in the game and different resources, even different rules. There's a board game called Root mm-hmm. that is fantastic in terms of, you know, one person is just a vagabond wandering in the in the woods, another person is trying to invade, another person is just trying to sell goods. And that what makes those kind of games work is that it's not that I'm directly trying to oppose the others, but they are getting in my way, right? It's like, I'm trying to cross the street in this direction. You're trying to cross it in that direction. And so the interaction comes from that. And it's neat because I don't understand their rules or what they're trying to do. Right. They don't understand mine. But you know, we come into this conflict. So asymmetric play can be really interesting. And uh, you know, I, I think about this circumstance in the real world where you know, you have a little old lady who's trying to cross the street, and you could have a Zen Buddhist and a Roman Catholic priest go help her. Right. <laughs> because they come to that, you know, from different areas, but it's the same same action. Yeah, although that would seem to be a shared victory condition, though. Well, yes, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's a place where, where they overlap, I guess. You know, we could talk about conflicts as, yeah. you know, as where, where, you know, a priest is trying to save the uh, consecrated Eucharist from a uh, burning a burning church Mm -hmm. and a fireman who's committed to being a hero is trying to grab the priest and take them out right right (laughs) it's like you're in my way (laughs) yeah i think there's even that story at the burning of notre dame when uh priests went back in to get the whole get the sacrament yeah yeah so actually we play a game at the house called dead of winter where it's actually part of the fun is you have a shared yeah goal but then each person has their own yes unique goal and in one of the players is often an enemy and they're trying to sabotage the mission so mm-hmm. that's so that, that that's a pretty fun fun one as well yeah is that the one that has the good ethical choices too like strangers come to the compound or is that a different game you can choose to kill uh people that are in your group i believe yeah okay. so there are there are some ethical choices in there well so uh you, you gave your academic position how about now your your personal position there. So, I mean, personally, I'm a I'm a Roman Catholic. Right. So, I, in in my view, all of these pursuits are embedded within a universe whose existence is sustained by a loving consciousness. Right. Okay. And in my view, that that loving consciousness is a game designer. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think God is a game designer, and has given us the free will and the consciousness, and has also embedded within people dignity which means that outcomes matter, okay? So uh, you know, that's how I'm playing the game, and I see everybody else's gameplay as being embedded in that. And you know, my sense is, and I try to review fairly all the other kind of victory conditions and approaches, but my, my sense is that is that not all of those stances are sort of coherent all the way through the way you know my own is. But of course, that's my bias. It's mine. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. In my class, uh, I teach a class called Health Policy and Human Flourishing. I do make the central premise that we are all after happiness, in a, and I mean a very capacious sense. Yeah. So to me, there is the sense in which there are these ultimate shared victory conditions that I think most people of goodwill can agree yeah. about. But then once you get into the stances, that's where the real, yeah. real differences are potentially. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, this, is really, this is really fascinating. One key feature of a game is that it's fun. I think that's almost the most basic feature of a game. Why is it that this game of life seems so dreadfully boring to so many people? Or is that it's just too frustrating? Is it is it dreadfully boring or is it too frustrating? You know, that's interesting. Uh, 
people who work in game design talk about those two things as the Scylla and Charybdis of game design, right? If you make the game too hard, it's frustrating. If you make it too easy, it's boring. So what's wrong with the modern condition? That's a big question. But as a game designer, when I look Mm -hmm. at it, there's no meaning there, right? Most people are uh, embedded in a system of choices where they look at that and they say, I don't really care Mm -hmm. about that. None of that makes me have a sense of mission. If you go back to Alastair McIntyre, a philosopher that I really like, 1984, yeah. he talked about the modern world is uh, missing the idea of quest mm. or mission. You know, yeah. Most people don't know why they're here. Now, we have to be fair. If you go back 700 years, yeah, people weren't bored because if they didn't work, they'd starve. So <laughs> right, right. we can't completely, you know, it's, it's, we have the privilege of being bored and frustrated and just not liking our game. But that having been said, you know, you, we can ask ourselves, you know, we've built, we've succeeded tremendously in doing the things that people 600 years ago said should be done, mm-hmm. cleanliness and safety and wealth. And, and yet we haven't been able to figure out how to design the way people live in a way that, that rewards them without frustrating them. Yeah. So I would think that the real benefit of playing games is that it might help you better understand how to play this ultimate game of life. Mm -hmm. So how might playing games actually help us to better participate in this game, this ultimate game of life? Well, one really easy one, this is low-hanging fruit, is the concept of investment. Hmm. Almost all games have some feature where uh, there's something you're trying to do, like you're trying to get victory points, but you can take some of your resources away from that and put them over to the side in something that is like useless right now. Mm-hmm. But eventually it will pay off. You know, it will end up giving you even more resources in the future. And that's just basic, you know, planning for the future stuff. And I, you know, I talk to game design students, you know, they're 19 and you know, they're excellent at this, Grant. Mm-hmm. They're just fantastic at what I just said. And then I, I ask them, what do you want to do in your life? What do you want to do when you're 35? And it's like, oh, I want to own my own trucking company or something. They said, well, have you thought about what you could do now to make that more likely in the future? And they're mm-hmm. like, I haven't really thought about that. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, right. I think that's that one is really easy. But there's lots of other things. I mean, I think a lot of people with problems with social adjustment can learn about teamwork by playing these team-based video games. I think that's a fantastic place to learn how to get along with others. Is there any empirical research around these questions? Is there anyone studying whether or not more game playing would lead to more pro-social yeah. outcomes or something like that? I have a great big we don't know uh-huh. as the answer to that. The, the difficulty is the research methods that are popular in game studies, I think, result in findings that are not that reliable. Right. What, what they typically do is they'll take – they say, okay, I'm setting up an experiment. We're going to have one group of people uh, be exposed to – a game or TV show or something, and the other is going to be exposed to something different. And then then they watch it for an hour or something or play it for an hour. And then like after that, they they fill out a survey or they have some kind of exercise that they do. And then the researcher will say, "Uh, it's, you know, the people who played the violent video game wrote, they scored themselves as more aggressive on this survey. And I I just, I, you know, and then the new journalists write the headline, video games cause murder. (laughs) <laughs> right, right, and that's true of everything. I mean, there are people who are studying people's moral choices in video games, that, but I just think that method, and it's always college students, 
Right, right. The people in the experiments are always college students. I mean, they're pretty well educated, overwhelmingly white Western people. And uh, I just don't think any of that can be generalized. And what we don't have, we don't have data. Like, I wish we had data on the intensity of violent gameplay within a certain state in the U.S. Because then I could correlate that, you know, in Alaska on a per capita basis, so many people are playing first-person shooters there, and the crime rate is through the roof. You know, that that kind of correlation I would find more persuasive. Right. But it's just not out there. And so I would say people who've had kids who've played video games know the answer. Right. Know the answers to these questions. But as a social science thing, no, we don't know. Interesting. So what what do you think parents know then? Well, I mean, I can just talk about my own experience, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And this is what I think media effects are. I'll just start with the conclusion, which is I don't think media changes the way people act, but I do think it shifts time mm. in a fundamental way. Right. So by far the biggest problem that people have in families with video games is getting their kids, boys, off their game in time for dinner. Right. That's you know, get off the game, it's time to go to practice. Get off the game, you got to do homework. And yeah, I mean, kids are frustrated when they walk away from a game, either because they lost or they didn't want to leave. So there is a short-term frustration mm -hmm. that comes from video games. But I think, you know, if you have a, a kid who's got problems and they play a lot of video games, I think the problems are causing the video game play, right. not the other way around. I, I have never heard of a case of a kid who was just doing great with his parents and getting along with kids at school and doing his homework. But oh, started playing a video game and now his life is ruined. Yeah, I have never never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, so what we do in our family is my son is is getting very interested in video games. Yeah, and so you know he has to read yes x number of hundreds of pages a week to get video games only on Saturdays and it must be pro social. Yeah, which means he has to play with dad or he has to play with a friend. Yep, and and he has like limited time. But I will say. My son has gotten very into games, and I mean board games. Yes. So he's gotten very intrigued by Dungeons and Dragons, and we started playing Gloomhaven. Uh huh. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if you're familiar with Gloomhaven, and it's really sparked his writing. He's been writing, um, you know, character biographies of his Gloomhaven characters. Perfect. Beautiful. So this leads to my next question: Are board games superior to video games in this particular way? Yes. I've seen it. I've seen it. So. <laughs> yeah. I teach exclusively with board games. Mm -hmm. When I teach my classes on games, I do not use video games. And the reason is that with a board game, you're doing the computer's work. Right. Right. Your brain is the computer. And so for my purposes as a teacher, I want students to understand game systems, like how the parts fit together. And with a board game, you can clearly see you know, you have to implement the system yeah. right yourself. Uh, with video games, the computer just does it. I think, you know, if, as a as a family person, I mean, I would have preferred lots more board gaming than we ended up doing right? because of things like that, writing and creativity, you know, just creating, uh, you know, people need to understand that role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons are collaborative storytelling events. Yeah. And kids, you know, even young kids can invent an adventure, which is much better than, than playing through an adventure, which I would add is much better than just sitting back and watching right. something on TV. I would always yeah. prefer my kids play video games to just sitting and watching TV. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I think I think board games are definitely the way to go. Also, they're limited in time. You know, it ends. Right. So I'm a public policy researcher, um, mostly health. So what can I learn about my own research if I played more board games? Wow. Public health. Well, I mean, you know that there are uh, board games that are pretty interesting simulations of mm – -hmm 
public health yeah. situations like pandemic. Yeah, we play pandemic. Comes to mind. You know, and I personally, in my class, I, I run an 80-person tabletop game. So what it is, it's, it's, a, it's an 80-person simulation of a virus outbreak, which, to keep things lighthearted, it turns rabbits into killer bunnies. Right? <laughs> okay. We, don't, we yeah. don't have infected people dying or anything like that. Yeah. But it spreads like a virus mm. among, you know, different bunnies. And uh, so, I, you know, I teach a lesson about communication in a crisis through that exercise. So I, I think, yeah, it, it, you know, it, you might also want to think about being a designer, because when you design these things, you sit down and you say, well, what is actually, in the simplest terms, the mathematical relationship between these things in my area of expertise? Like, right. what's the source of the, what are the resources? Where do they come from? How do they get shifted around? What are people trying to do? Um, I found that very helpful and very fun to yeah. design things. Interesting. All right. Well, I'll keep I'll keep that in mind. I yeah. Like I said, we um. My son. I was not a gamer. In fact, I remember uh. I, I was an athlete in high school, so I used to sort of tease the guys that would play magic cards. Right. But now my son has been has gotten very into games. Particularly, yeah. He really wants to play magic. So you know, it was a thing that I'd always poo pooed playing board games, and now our family is a gaming family, and I missed out. I, I really think that I that I missed out in my youth on not playing uh, more games. Yeah. But it, you know, you're aware of them, and I think increasingly parents need to have a good sense of what's a good game and what's a bad one. You know, if they're playing Minecraft, that's awesome. That's just a huge Lego set. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and you can learn programming and electrical engineering in there. It's crazy. I do think the game of life, not life as a game, but the game life, the board, <laughs> I think that's probably the worst board game I've ever, I've ever played. I hate that more than anything else. Yeah. It, I, I hate Monopoly. Monopoly takes the cake for me in terms of the worst, but... <laughs> Yeah. Right. It has to be. It's it's like bad writing, right? Bad writing can't be. It's got to be good enough to be bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It's you know these life and monopoly are very popular and they're horrible. And All right. All right. So I do want to switch gears a bit and talk about some of your work related to virtual reality. Sure. And so I'm thinking here, particularly fully immersive digital worlds. I'm thinking The Matrix or Ready Player One. And and it sounds as though what we talked about before is maybe that understanding of these sort of single virtual worlds isn't the future, but we can talk a little bit about that. Right. But, and I, I do want to say from the outset that I do not have a smartphone. I've never spent any time in virtual worlds, but after doing the back reading for this interview, I think I've become pretty convinced that understanding the role of virtual worlds in our future lives is probably the most pressing concern of our day. I really do. And it implicates all of my work, healthcare. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm interested in labor, uh, human flourishing. These are all will be deeply impacted by what happens with the virtual world, virtual world. So I'm really excited to pepper you with questions, but this is very much from an outsider. Sure. So here's my first question. I want you to opine a little bit, do some saying. Tell me a bit about what my grandson's life will look like in relation to virtual worlds. So my son is 10 mm -hmm. and my daughter's 12. So I've, I think I'll probably have a grandchild, 2060, 2070. Mm -hmm. What's his... Or a grandchild more generally, not necessarily a grandson. What would the life look like in terms of virtual worlds? Okay, so I'd actually like to talk about your granddaughter. Okay, all right. Your grandson, most of, to me, the most important thing that's going to be going on is he's going to be spending a lot of time looking at screens, and almost all of his sexual impulses will be satisfied throughout his life through those screens. Right. The thing that's really, I don't know, earth shattering or that the breakthrough is going to be for the granddaughter. The artificial womb technology. Oh, interesting. And beginning to satisfy her desires with respect to fertility mm. through technical means. Interesting. Um, and, and you know, I I focus on those because I you know I'm really thinking 
in the long run like what is going to change for the human person right and i think you know we're, people are going to spend more time on screens than they do now i think that mm -hmm. you can kind of see that that's happening but within a couple of generations the idea of being together mm -hmm. <laughs> is going to you know it's very gradual but it will be declining right and most of the things that we do together will be satisfied to an increasing extent by um, digital means. What about something like Ready Player One, where you have a substantial portion, maybe almost the entire population sitting in chairs with goggles on, uh, projecting the world into their eyes, gamifying? Do you see that as like an actual reality within the next 40 years? Not, maybe not within 40 years, but eventually. I think like if I were to invest in stocks uh, and, and startups, I would look into ones that automate the delivery of nutrients to people in their apartments and the removal of waste from people sitting in chairs. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, 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 because I, I do. I, I just, you know, with when TV came, we realized how sedentary a human person can be when they have entertainment in front of their eyes. And I just, I don't see anything in current trends that's going to, make people generally want to get up out of their chairs more, right? Right. I'm not looking out in the real world and seeing anything new or exciting is happening there. I mean, personally, yeah. I think it's wonderful, but I also know I'm a tiny minority <laughs> and right. it's going to get smaller. <laughs> yeah. So wait, which part do you think is wonderful? Just to clarify. I think real life is wonderful. Right. Yes. And that's where all people should be almost all the time. Right. But I don't think... You know, it, it's like the flood is coming and we don't have enough sandbags and most people will end up in the chairs, I think, sadly. Right. But I think that's what's going to happen. Okay. So I'm going to use the metaverse as just a shorthand, a popular shorthand for what we're talking about here. So these fully immersive virtual digital worlds. Two things that I could talk about all day are church mm. and governance. So government and civil society. So we've asked this question of a number of guests. Will there be church in the metaverse? Oh, yeah. There will well, There'll be attempts at church. Right. There will be people, you know, zooming together or in some other kind of format, and some sort of liturgy will happen. But as a Catholic, I can say none of those would be valid, right? Because, and when you know, certain religions, including the Catholic one, require physical presence. Mm -hmm. So, and that's related to the real presence in the Eucharist. The priest must touch the bread, must speak to the bread and then must give the bread physically to the people who must eat it. Right. The Catholic Church made a, a pronouncement about virtual communion decades ago. I mean, they're so far ahead of everything. So I think you know people will be doing something that, that they consider to be church, but um, it'll be kind of like, uh, what if you didn't have a priest in your town? Mm -hmm. right? Maybe you might get together and have coffee and talk about the Lord or, and things like that, but it's not, it's not what we're called to do. Yeah, so in terms of uh, the, the Catholic faith, Potentially, the liturgy of the hours mm -hmm. might be appropriate in the metaverse, but then the sacraments, not so much. Right. This, the sacraments simply can't be right. done in virtual reality. But you can see in the in in uh, well, first of all, let me let me just back up and say what is the metaverse. So right. we talked earlier about the fact that it's not going to be one, you know, one one company to rule them all. We're, we're sort of we're in the metaverse right now. Right. Like you and I are in the metaverse, and it's uh, this flowering, this this explosion of different things that go on your screens. And the point is, we'll be looking at our our screens all the time, mm -hmm. and uh, so I think people are in the metaverse now, and they're doing religion in the metaverse now. All the live streaming yeah. 
of church services during COVID. That's yeah, that's it. That's a, a big part of the future. So it seems to you that the the technology itself, like the the goggles and the chair, are a little less important. And you seem to be talking about the metaverse more conceptually than than we sort of imagine it to be. Yeah, I don't identify the term metaverse with a particular product. Right. I think the, the metaverse, if I were to define it, would be the collection of all digitally mediated experiences. Yeah. So say the church sends missionaries into the metaverse. Right. It's so funny to think about, especially, you know, and again, I'm, I'm having this conception in my mind of, of the Matrix or Ready Player One. Maybe that's not even the right conception. Would the job of the church, the missionaries, to be pulling people out of this sort of virtual reality or ministering to them within that particular space? I think that's the ancient dilemma of mm-hmm. the the call to mission. Yeah. You know, to what extent do you allow people, well, allow, to what extent do you validate what people are doing now while trying to get them to act differently? I think any any reasonable assessment of the good of the human person would look at someone in a chair and say, we need to get you out of that chair. <laughs> right. But when you think about the alternatives, like suppose, okay, I get you out of the chair and there's no work for you and there's nowhere for you to live and there's no one that you love outside the chair, yeah. right? Then it's tough. You're going to be dealing with people who everyone they know and love is that they connect to through virtual reality. Yeah. And, you know, I think the first step would be to get people to acknowledge Jesus and to study Jesus and start to walk with Jesus. And then, yeah. you know, in a dystopian future, there's going to be a priest who knocks on the door and the person is surprised to have anybody knock on the door. Right. Or, or not not even a priest, but a, a person who says, come with me. Right. Get out of the chair and come with me and receive the bread of life. Oh, wow. So I had a couple of questions about government, but this, but this conversation actually leads into another question that I had that I think is actually more pressing right now. Yeah. One thing that struck me when I watched Zuckerberg's videos about the metaverse is it's really charged with excitement and optimism. But as I read the novels in Snow Crash, <laughs> yeah, uh, Necro, uh, Neuroma- Neuromancer, Neuromancer, yeah, and um, Ready Player One. I watched The Matrix. I watched it again in preparation for this call. Mm-hmm. I get the sense that at the center of those novels and that art is hopelessness. To what extent is the drive towards virtual worlds driven by despair, as opposed to the the happy, clappy Zuckerberg videos? Oh, I think despair is is a huge part of it. I think despair is a, is a big part of what's happening. The the people who just as an example, someone who goes into a virtual world and has an encounter with a non-player character who is, uh, you know, an older character, kind of a Gandalf, and mm-hmm. supports them emotionally and things like this. We can look at that and say, isn't it terrible? that this person is connecting to someone who is so virtual. It's not a real person. They should have a real world mentor. Right. What if they don't have one though? <laughs> right. And, and so I think the fact that people are so drawn to virtual experiences is a mirror on our on the world we've made out here. Right. And if, if the world out here was better, I don't think the metaverse would be as attractive as it is. So thinking a little bit about, will this move also also make the world outside of the metaverse demonstrably worse. Again, I was sort of thinking about Ready Player One. It's essentially a dystopian landscape. And it really was almost Mad Max where you have these sort of these rich enclaves that are protected by paramilitary people. Everyone sort of exists in the, you know, the the game. But and then the rest of reality is just this wasteland. I think there's going to be a lot of wasteland, but I, I actually have become more optimistic about what else could happen. Okay. 
So I imagine, I, I call them consecrated birth communities. That, that is people who, because of some vision of the sacred, say, you know what, we're just going to live physically. Right. That's what we're going to do. And they, they go off into the countryside like the Amish, and they just live there. Mm-hmm. And I think the future of the human genome belongs to those communities. And, and you know, when I say consecrated, I, I'm being very general. It could be Amish people. It could be Catholics, Muslims, Orthodox Jews, people who are devoted to nature, you know, outdoors type people. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think like the urban areas and suburban areas will continue to become less and less meaningful and more and more like a wasteland. And right. probably there'll be a lot of grass growing on the streets there. Yeah. But there will be people up in their houses, in their apartments, and so on. But outside of those areas could actually be kind of neat, kind of cool. Yeah. So this ties in pretty well. I've, I've been interviewed, well, I did interview someone named Lyman Stone. I don't know if you know Lyman, but he's a, he's a Lutheran. He's a demographer and uh, is a pronatalist. He's been writing about our plummeting birth rates for a while. All right. And his predictions are dour. They're tremendously dour. But I wonder if his predictions are actually optimistic. <laughs> I've noticed that the impact of VR d- has not even really entered into the um, into the equations. I noticed. Oh, so he's he's being he's dour before even thinking about the fertility effects of VR. Exactly. Wow. And, and I read your paper uh, where you s- sort of did some modeling, looking at engagement with VR and how that would impact population levels. Some of your models predicted human extinction. Right. Are these other models, even though they're dour, like tremendously optimistic? So the extinction comes about, in in my view, on the the following two assumptions. Number one, it takes nobody to run technology. Right. Eventually, everything is automated. And then number two, no one can escape the lure of the virtual, right? If it's the case that everyone will find virtual reality irresistible, that means everyone will be in there and all of their desires will be satisfied, mm-hmm. which means eventually people will not have children. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the extinction model. But after I wrote that paper a few years later, I just I just started thinking about the Amish. I just and, and I've become associated with a monastery in southern Indiana called St. Meinrad. Yeah, I'm familiar, yeah. Arch Abbey. And and I thought, you know, I could see a little this little community of monks mm-hmm. and, and families around it. That's not. That's probably not going to go into VR. Right. So I think for the secular world or the laptop class or however you want to characterize people who are like Zuckerberg, they're just all in to this. Mm-hmm. I think that culture is is doomed in some way. But that doesn't mean all of humanity is. So I don't know if do you read Percy Walker Percy. I don't know if he's an author that you read. No. So you might want to read Lost in the Cosmos. That's actually the final scene of the book. Okay. Is uh, it's a little community of people that have decided not to give into the logic of um, materialism, basically. Oh, that's fantastic. And and it's a, fa- grounded around uh, a number of Benedictine monks. That it's a long it's a long complicated story. But what, what's the title? I want to make sure I read it. Lost in the Cosmos. Uh, Percy's a Catholic novelist. The whole book, it's, it's a strange book, but <laughs> it, it ends with this vision of, a, of basically a new, a, a new civilization, mm-hmm. post-apocalyptic, that um, has rejected the sort of logic that leads to the metaverse. It's great. And it, that's basically how every Michael O'Brien book mm-hmm. ends. If you've ever read O'Brien, you know, uh, walking through the cleft of the rock into this new Catholic yeah. commune, basically. So, you know, and what's interesting is some 
particularly Lyman, when I talk to him, really rejects this notion of the, re- the religious will inherit the earth, which is sort of what you're getting at. Not necessarily religious, but and his argument is that our kids apostatize too fast. Right. We can't keep them enough. Like we can't have enough kids to repopulate the earth because they all apostatize and become non-Christians. So, so I guess the question would be, can we keep our kids out of VR long enough to populate the earth? Well, I think, again, the Amish are a really good model of this. I mean, they give their kids umspringe, which means jump around. So, yeah, naturally, uh, you're going to have in a community of, let's say, 100 families, there'll be two or 300 kids, and you're going to lose a big chunk of them. Mm -hmm. And it's just the question is whether it's sustainable. But I would also say this. When we talk about, you know, survival of humans, we don't need a lot of people for that. You know, we need like, I don't know, 100,000, 10,000 right? We don't have to have 7 billion people. (laughs) So, and from the standpoint of Christian eschatology, I mean, I think to me, that's what the coming of the end of the age is. It's not, there's going to be, you know, fires and nuclear bombs everywhere. It's going to be, okay, we're down to the last community of 75 people. This is the end of humanity. That's cool. How many of us are Christians? (laughs) That's, you know, that's going to be the end of the story. And, And I'm okay with that. I'm like, you know, that's it's there's nothing special about humanity living forever, I don't. Right. So, one other thing that came to mind as I was reading your work is you make this statement, we seem to think sitting in a chair all day, isolated and sedentary is not an objectively good life. So, to someone like me, that statement seems self-evident. But to many, many pro virtuality advocates, that is not a self-evident statement at all. How do you make this argument to someone who is is a VR apologist? Yeah. Or is it just even worth making? Yeah, that's a tough one. And, and, and also, uh, I also want to mention, it's also grounded in the fact that a lot of times people that spend a lot of time in VR, they have more life satisfaction in VR than out of VR. Oh, yeah. So like, then why should why should we keep them out? They're, they seem happier. Yeah, this is going to be a serious problem for liberal democracy on, on one assumption about lo- what liberal democracy becomes. So it does seem self-evident to me that you know living your life in a chair is is not a good thing. But there's such a fascination with the concept of progress and the right side of history. So if you could have a world where you had billions of people and none of them made a peep because they were all blissfully happy in their chairs, and the ruling class got to run around saying, hey, we're the ruling class. We have have laptops and we go into our VR chairs every once in a while, but then we get on our Pelotons, we go hiking in the Yosemite, and mm-hmm. and so what's not to love? So I, I think right. the issue with with people who are pro VR is they have a lifestyle and wealth and connections and and uh, what you might call individual upbringing, breeding in the old term, yeah, that allows them to balance the two things, and that's very similar to lots of of problems that we have in sort of late liberalism is that you know I live in a neighborhood with a bunch of professors who reject all things religious right. and, and all anyone who tries to say marriage is important and to all of them, marriage is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. <laughs> because they realize that it can have a bad effect on kids. So they really work on their marriages. And, and, and so it'd be the same thing with VR. They'll all be like, well, you know, people should balance their VR use and not really recognizing that their promotion of VR and saying it's really quite healthy mm-hmm. is having a devastating impact on people who are not in the same position as far as self-discipline and yeah. and social norms and social capital. Yeah, it's interesting is the 
unmitigated advance of the autonomous individual certainly mm-hmm. hurts the poor more than it does anybody else. Oh, absolutely. I like that phrase, the unmitigated advance of the autonomous individual. That's great for people in the upper <laughs> class, but man, yeah, very bad for anybody who's not educated and doesn't have the cognition and self-control that they do. Yeah. So I wonder in some ways if um, this sort of movement will usher in this sort of long-awaited post-liberal order where we actually return to some conversation about the good as opposed to just strictly talking about rights. And we talk about that. You know, there's a lot of Catholic Mm -hmm. political theorists who are – excited about the return of sort of the post-liberal order. But I wonder if it's, this is necessary because ultimately your concern about VR is really one of the good, certainly not one of rights. Yeah. The question, and I, I said this earlier, I, I'm thinking a lot now about what democracy and governance is going to look like. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I assumed that what would happen is the standard social progress dynamic would kick in where the people who are in charge you know, need to have some kind of crusade and they would identify people in chairs as a crusade and those people would want to stay in their chairs and that would be the conflict. But I'm, I'm actually becoming more cynical about whether we will return to a conversation about the good Mm. or a conversation about rights or a conversation about anything at all. Because it seems like my experience of the last four or five years is there's not really a conversation. There's just power. Right, right. And power is doing whatever it wants. And the, the, the power changes what it says is true from month to month. And the entire, uh, what you might call the, um, again, the laptop classes, seem to be able to turn on a dime <laughs> with whatever the new, you know, the new word is or the new bad word or and so I, I'm skeptical about whether our public life will be ordered in any sense. Mm, interesting. That it will just be this this self repopulating cadre of elite people. So I, I, I am interested in I was gonna ask this question earlier and then we kind of uh, went another way, but the function of government within virtual worlds. I know, again, I, I, in preparation for this call, I read Ready Player One for the first time. There are actual governments in this virtual world. So what will be the function of governments in these, and I mean the, the virtual governments that exist within these virtual worlds? Will this simply be sort of a fancy discussion board moderator? Or could you see them having real power once people spend 12 hours a day in these worlds? Well, I think game developers already have real power over people's lives. I mm-hmm. think that ship has sailed. And you can see it also with Twitter and Facebook. But I've been telling game designers for years, you, you folks need to write like constitutions. Mm-hmm. You, you don't realize that, but you're, you are government in the environments that you operate. And you acquire that power through the end user licensing agreement, which is in effect the constitution. Right. And you know people just, they don't read it and they just check yes. And then they, they have a number of hours of their day in an environment where the government is is the game companies and you know there it's kind of an interesting form of government you know the game developers run the game because unlike in the real world people can instantly leave that country mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't do that you can't say ah, i don't like how the election came out i'm i'm moving right right i mean you could but it's expensive whereas in the virtual environment you you know the the government is constrained by the need to keep its population so it's that's a new it's a new model, but I think there's there are big big questions that still have to be resolved, and that is the relationship between those governments and the Earth government, right? Right, the real world government, and I think one front in that is Bitcoin. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that that's you know I think people who are enthusiasts for decentralized finance and blockchain and cryptocurrency they think they've discovered a technology that no government can interfere with. 
And I think people in the government laugh at that idea. Right. And you know, and I think anytime something that that area gets big enough to be a problem, it will be swatted down really, really hard. Like you're old enough to remember. Remember, music was going to be free. Right. Yeah, Napster. It's not free. Right. It's not free. Yeah. It could be, but it isn't, and that's because of the real world governments. Right. So you know, it, it's it's and you you can also see between like Twitter and the United States Congress, there's this delicate dance going on where you've got people who've got you know guns behind their backs but right now it's this this delicate little dance and uh, it's not clear how governance is going to shake out but definitely there's a new player as far as who is governing our lives and that is the owners of online products one thing that also interests me is this i had never thought about this i i thought sort of the march forward was the one world sort of again like ready player one we have this one game that everybody enters in and people do their schooling there so in some ways it almost seems like the way it's played played out almost further reinforces polarization where even in like these virtual realities we still don't inhabit the same world nope so i wonder what that how this drive people's lives together if not only are some people living in real world, some people living virtual world, but then even within the virtual world, it's not like there's even commonality where they're together. No, there's just this uh, cornucopia of digital experiences that you mm-hmm. can choose from. And if you want multiplayer experiences, you just choose those that attract communities that you like. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason for people to interact with anyone that they don't like right. in, in a virtual environment. And that's in a way, that's the power of that model mm-hmm. of the metaverse, the model of the metaverse as as a million vines, mm-hmm. not like like one great big bear or something, but a million vines crawling in everywhere. And, and and also let's remember that it won't be too long and people will feel themselves to be interacting with other people, but those other people won't be people. They'll be AI. Right. So that's that's another, you know, community, if you will, that many people will choose. It's like I I don't want to deal with this person complaining about the way I play. So, uh, you know, I go and I play a game and it turns out all the other players are not humans. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people are aware of that. Sometimes they're not. So I guess when you play online poker, almost all of the players are bots. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Right. And, and there was that, there was that dating site, that Canadian dating site that went down and it turned out a huge fraction of the females that were on that dating site were fake. Was it the Ash- Ashley Madison, the one where yeah. married men could have anonymous sex with right. maybe other married women or something? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And and it just, you know, they made it look like it was 50-50, but that's because a huge number of the female ones were fake. And people were surprised when uh, a website that caters to extramarital affairs was primarily men. Yeah. Right. It, exactly. Right. Because, you know, they didn't have to advertise, you know, ladies get in free to try and balance the... <laughs> right. But uh, and, and I think that... People, when they talk about AI taking over for human beings, again, they see it as this big announcement, and now AI is going to do this. But instead, it's it's little stuff like like I play this game called Stellaris, and if I don't feel like it's a space game, I don't feel like managing that planet anymore, I click a button, and an AI governor takes over the planet. Mm-hmm. And so we'll eventually be at a point where, oh, I'm in the middle of a match, but I have to go to the bathroom or something. I'm just going to click my AI self who's going to mm-hmm. play for me for a while while I go do that thing. Yeah. And those things will become more sophisticated and eventually our bodies will die and those those governors will continue to play and nobody will even know I'm gone. That's amazing. So one thing that 
that this conversation brought up was what happens when people re-enter the w- real world. They spend eight hours a day in virtual reality, you know, and a lot of that time will be spent shooting people and mm-hmm. uh, probably having sex with avatars. And, you know, one of the most popular forms of pornography is rape porn, right? Mm-hmm. So you have folks, you know, doing these very violent acts and sort of antisocial acts within VR because that's part of the appeal, right? Is you get to go in and do things that you would never do in real life. Mm-hmm. Now, we know that there's the correlation between, and, and you mentioned this before, you know, violence in video games and then real world violence is probably pretty weak. What happens when it becomes so immersive that what happens when folks reenter the real world? Do you see them being antisocial or is this a way to get it out of your system and it's almost therapeutic? You know, it's really, really hard to tease those two things out. I have seen one good study about movie violence and it suggested that when people go to violent movies, crime in the real world drops, but that's because they're in the movie theater. Right. <laughs> the criminal's yeah. good. So, yeah, I, I don't think that being immersed in VR and doing all kinds of terrible things would lead to lead people to go and do that in reality. I mean, think about a couple of reasons why not. One would be that when you go out in reality, it's a much worse experience. Mm-hmm. The real woman who walks down the street is not going to look like, you know, the woman that you see in VR. I mean, that's already the case. Mm-hmm. You know, the, what I mean is is that, you know, people already report that that there's like erectile dysfunction among young men because their, right. their girlfriends are just not what's in the picture. Mm -hmm. So I think that mitigates against it to some extent. But I I also think that the way these things are happening is is in a, is much more subtle though it's not, it's not like the issue will be i go outside and i feel every woman is an object for me to drag off the street it's more that like my understanding of my expectation about what is supposed to happen is changing so for example you know she's supposed to react in a certain way because that's what always happens in the game and let's say you know i'm like okay you know you have to come over here with me and she doesn't react the way in the game that she does in the virtual environment. And that, so the way I think I've seen this is um, I believe there's a connection between video games and the anger of politics among young people. Interesting. And it is this, in a video game, you don't compromise with anyone. You identify what's bad and you go destroy it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and also in a video game, there's no unemployment. Right. Right. You always have something to do. So I, I always, I wonder about the expectation that people come out into the world expecting I, I should have a job. Someone should come up to me and say, hey, carry this over here and I'll give you $20. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, my opponents are are just bad people and I just have to destroy them. Right. right? That's, and I think on the question of, of like violence and so on, it's like, wait a minute, I'm out here walking down the street. I, I don't have a gun and that I don't know who I'm supposed to shoot. I, I you know, this is, if what, what happens is people get frustrated with the real world. Mm-hmm. This is my theory, right? That the folks raised by video games, if you will, are just baffled at the way the real world works. And I think that'll just get worse and worse. Well, Ted, this was a really, really fun conversation. Unfortunately, we're hitting our, our time limit, <laughs> but, uh, I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast. This was this is maybe the funnest I've had on a podcast so far. Oh gosh, thank you. So I'm so grateful that you uh, took some time to do this, and and hopefully we'll see each other again at maybe the Society for Catholic Social Scientists in uh, in 2022. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks a lot, Grant. It was really fun. All right, thanks so much, and have a good day. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. 
That's Beatrice Institute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.